And I am looking forward to going to that place where the soul never dies. I really am. Book of Ruth begins with a phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. First words, in the days when the judges ruled. And that is a phrase which should, if you've been coming the, during the course of the last few months, that gives us a lot of context. It is a very suggestive phrase uh, because on Sunday nights we have been studying this time when the judges ruled. And I think to put it mildly, you could say it was not a high point in the history of Israel. Not, certainly not a high point spiritually, not a high point morally, not a high point in terms of territorial expansion, uh, not a high point really in any way that I can think of. Um, the ethic of the time, if there was an ethic of the time, was do it your way. Do whatever you want to do. In fact, I think the, the book ends with that phrase, and everybody did as they saw fit. And that's how things worked in the time of the judges. Uh, it was a period of time uh, of huge swings, pendulums swinging back and forth, uh, kind of uh, at the longest 40-year cycles, usually even less than that. Um, you would have idolatry, and I mean big-time idolatry. I mean, whatever gods they could scrounge up to worship from neighboring peoples, they were on their knees. They were worshiping. Uh, they were giving their hearts to those foreign gods. And uh, then at some point, the pendulum swings back, and they would repent, if you could call it that. Um, it's hard to tell if they were repenting in that genuine sense of their hearts crying out for God to be back in fellowship with God, or if it was just that on the verge of national extinction, God was their only recourse. I guess we're going to have to cry out to God. I guess, I guess God is our only hope. And oftentimes in the book of Judges, that's the way it seems when it comes to their repentance, that it was more an act of desperation than, than a heartfelt cry of, of a heart who loves. Um, so the borders of Israel were frequently overrun. We've seen this over the past few months. Don't need to go over all the different groups that would just kind of come over, the Midianites and the Moabites and the different groups that would come over, Ammonites. Um, it was kind of a lawless time. Uh, everybody did as they saw fit. Shortages were common. Uh, there would be seasons that went by where there wasn't much of a grain harvest, where there was a lot of hunger. Uh, and the leaders, even these leaders who God anointed for the purpose of deliverance, the judges, even these leaders uh, seem to lack much moral or spiritual fortitude. So the book of Ruth opens, and we are told that the story we are about to encounter happened in the days when the judges ruled, in this time period of the nation's history. There was a man from Bethlehem named Elimelech. He had a wife named Naomi. Now, you probably know this. It's just kind of a good reminder, though. Um, oftentimes, uh, not always, but oftentimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, the names of people and the names of places have significance, have, have great meaning that you can uncover. Uh, like right here, town of Bethlehem. Bethlehem doesn't even know that's house of bread, house of bread. 
Uh, interesting, right? Jesus, the bread of life, was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. Um, one day, the bread of life came into the world there in Bethlehem. Elimelech, great name this man has. Um, Elimelech's name means, my God is king. That's a good one. My God is king. I like that. Naomi, his wife, Naomi means sweet or pleasant. Um, so this is a story about Ruth, who we're going to meet in a little bit. And in this story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, eventually, we will hear about God working in the lives of ordinary people and doing wonderful things. Uh, it is a time of feast or famine, mostly famine, uh, during the reign of the judges. Elimelech and Naomi had a couple of sons, and they found themselves living in this season where nothing was growing. The barley harvest, non-existent. Um, the grape harvest, non-existent. Terrible season of famine around 1100 B.C. And it was then that they found themselves in a situation where they're just in Judea, where Bethlehem was located. If you've been over there, you know Bethlehem is just outside of Jerusalem. It was there that there just wasn't enough food to go around Jerusalem wasn't the Jerusalem we think of, though, of uh, a Jerusalem occupied by Israel. It was occupied at that time by the Jebusites. That's pointless to the story, but interesting. So Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem, that's where God's people lived. Um, now consider this situation from Naomi's point of view. Uh, times are hard for people in Judea. Lots of loved ones and friends are unemployed. I mean, normally they would be getting up early and going out and harvesting. There's no grain to harvest. No grapes to harvest. Um, and God has promised you this land. I mean, for centuries, this is your land. Before you were enslaved, your ancestors, your, your, your forerunners in, in Egypt, God had given this land to Abraham. So you knew one day, this is ours. We're going to occupy this land. And it seems that God has kind of turned his back on you, kind of turned his back on your people. I mean, you brought us here to starve to death. Um, and there's this economic downturn, Elimelech has lost his job, people around Bethlehem, uh, a town of maybe 200, 300 people. Um, they are finding themselves in kind of the same situation where they are having great difficulty just making ends meet from month to month. Um, famine has struck, no crops are growing in the fields, but you hang on. You save, you scrimp, you think there must be a turnaround just around the corner Surely things can't get any worse than they are. And time passes. You know, weeks and months, a couple of years. And they're not turning around. Things aren't getting better. And Naomi has been saving. She has been rationing the food, um, the wine, the occasional meat. And finally, the bins are empty. I mean, you can see the bottom of all of these storage containers. The reserves have disappeared. Every day is a guessing game as to whether she will actually have anything to cook for her husband and for their two sons. Now they have gradually sold things off, liquidated things of value, heirlooms and, and the family donkey or whatever. And, uh, and she finally hears something she never thought she would hear. Her husband, Elimelech, proposes a solution that, frankly, shocked her. 
I think we're going to have to cross over the Jordan, cross over into the land of Moab and try our luck there. I mean, if not, I think we're just going to starve to death here. And this is their land, land that God gave them. So this name, Elimelech, means my God is king, but her husband, I think in some sense has lost faith, decided to strike out in a foreign land to move away from the land that God gave him and his descendants to occupy. Naomi knew things were desperate, but she never imagined that her husband would give up on this promise, give up on the land God had given them. So off they go. Uh, They leave everything they have known, their culture, their friends, their language, everything. It's just Elimelech, it's Naomi, and it is their two boys, Mahlon and Kilion. And they're now in this culture with not only a new language, new culture, but frankly hostile neighbors who don't much appreciate the presence of refugees, undocumented aliens in their community, Hebrew people. What are you doing? This is our land. And everybody in those days was concerned about having enough. And if you're adding extra mouths to feed, it's like, seriously, Why are you, what are you doing in our land? Go back to Israel. And so there they are, far from home, far from extended family. Elimelech grows ill, and he dies. The only thing Naomi has left are her two sons, Malon and Kilion. She has never imagined or dreamt, she certainly dreamt that they would have wives and she would have grandchildren, never imagined that they would marry Moabite women, foreign women, but that's what happened. And that may not have been how she would have drawn it up, but at least they got married, at least they found wives, and at least a dream of one day bouncing their children, her grandchildren, on her knee was still alive. Kilion married a Moabite woman named Orpah. Malon married a Moabite named Ruth. Now, Naomi's been in Moab at this point about 10 years, and while things have not gone according to plan, at least her boys finally have wives. Now, back to the names. Malon, this name in Hebrew, means sickly. That's one of her son's names, probably a nickname. I doubt if she gave that to him early on, Malon. But in Moab, they got these nicknames. They were always sick. They were not thriving. Malon, sickly, Kilion means poorly. My sons are sickly and poorly. The move to Moab had had weakened them. Like their father, they had been ill. And like their father, they passed away. They died. And so there's Naomi, alone, except now for these two foreign daughters-in-law, Orpah and Ruth. But I think it's fair to assume here that Naomi, I mean, the, let's just say the hope tank was pretty low at this point. Just getting out of bed in the morning to face the day would have been a colossal challenge. 
her world had fallen to pieces. And I mean, think about that. She has lived through financial crisis, through famine. She said goodbye to her home. She said goodbye to her people. She said goodbye to her husband. Said goodbye to her first son. Said goodbye to her only remaining child. There's something you need to know. And probably not shocking news, but in those days... It wasn't good to be a single woman. I mean, a grown-up, out-of-the-house, single woman. Women depended on men to provide for them, to protect them. And ultimately, in that culture, in that day, it was through having children that a woman found her meaning. That's the way it was. And so now, Naomi finds herself the worst kind of of single, a widow, but an older widow. Childbearing years are long gone. Years when she might remarry, long gone. Her son's dead and buried. No grandchildren. The family line will end with her. All she has left are these two foreign girls. So she chooses the only path available to her. She chooses a return to Judea. Back west, news has gotten to her that things have turned around, that things are better back there now. And so perhaps she can go back and find a place with her extended family. So she begins the journey, and the two daughters-in-law are traveling with her. And at some point, and this is just an incredibly deep, complex, moving story. It has so many twists and turns that you just couldn't make this up. It, it has this feel of authenticity because it's real. Um, she has talked to them about, no, don't, don't stay with me. You girls go back. I mean, they're young enough to, to go home, to go back to their people, to their homes, to the, to the Moabite community. They're young enough to, to marry, to find young husbands and to have children and to have a life. But they say, no, we're going to go with you. And they, they, they go along the road and then they stop and, and they all begin weeping and hugging. And then once again, she, the word here in the Bible is urges. She pleads, she begs with them. And this shows her strength of character. She begs them to go back. Don't come with me. Don't move with me over to a foreign land. Go back home. Take care of yourselves. You have a future. You're young. Orpah embraces Naomi, kisses her, and says goodbye. But it's hard. Ruth will not turn loose of her mother-in-law, she just hugs her and cries. Naomi looks at Ruth, begs her again to go, but she won't go. And then we have this, I would say for sure, but it's definitely got to be in the list. But for me, for my money, this is the most beautiful vow of love from one human being to another human being in all of the Bible 
uh, maybe in all of history, uh, in literature. And it is so powerful, it is so moving that it has become standard in a lot of weddings these days, especially when I was growing up. I remember growing up, every wedding I would go to in southwest Missouri in the 1970s, there would be this reading from the book of Ruth, and there would be some song from Fiddler in the Roof. That's all I remember. Um, every wedding had those same common denominators, and then big wild dresses, and then those, those mints and uh, nuts at the rece- receptions have gotten so much better. Thank you, guys. So much better now. Um, but you have this vow of love, and it's interesting, right, that this makes its way into weddings. I mean, this is not a husband to wife, a bride to groom sort of thing. This is a friendship vow. This is woman to woman, but it is that powerful. So Ruth chapter 1, 16 to 18 you know, she's being urged by Naomi, no, go home, go to your people, go back to Moab. And Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people, my people. Literally in the Hebrew, your people, my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. There I will be buried. Right next to you. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. That's good. Naomi realized, the text says, that Ruth was determined to go with her. So she stopped urging her. And, you know, you just you have to give Naomi a hand for just the, the character here, the sacrifice. I mean, these two girls who obviously love her very much, it's all she has, and she's trying to get them to go home. She, she knows they can have a better... She's trying to do the right thing. She's trying to do the logical thing. She's trying to do the tactical thing, certainly trying to do the loving thing, to send them where she knows they could have a future doesn't want them to sacrifice themselves for her, this aging widow. But Naomi underestimated the devotion that Ruth had towards her, right? Nothing she could say could convince Ruth to part ways with her. Where you go... I go where you stay. I stay. Your people are going to be my people. Your God is my God. Where you are buried, I will one day be buried right beside you. That's just breathtaking. And so Naomi's selflessness in releasing these girls to go back home and Ruth's relentless love in refusing to leave her side breathless. It's it's just beautiful. Breathtaking stuff. So verse 19. So the two of them, we're down to two. The two of them continued on their journey. When they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is it really Naomi? The women asked. Oh no, don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead call me Mara. Bitter. For the Almighty has made life very mara for me, very bitter for me. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. 
Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer and the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me? So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now we're not going to go any further in the story tonight. We'll do a little cliffhanger. I got some more stuff I want to share here, but we'll leave a little cliffhanger here because there is some promise in that phrase. In the beginning of the barley harvest, things have turned around. Things are growing. People can think about the future again. And so there they go, arrive in Bethlehem to Naomi's home where her roots are. And for Ruth, she has decided wherever Naomi goes, even to this foreign place, that will be home for her. Wherever, wherever Naomi is, that's home for me. And it's been a long time, but the town, you, it's a small town, but they are buzzing with her return. The ladies are so excited to see her again. And then that, you know, names again, Naomi, don't call me sweet. Don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me bitter because life has been hard. The Lord has allowed some difficult things to pass through His hand into my life. I went away full all those years ago when we left Bethlehem. Times were tough, yes, but I had my husband. I had my two sons. Now I'm empty. She has lost every member of her immediate family since she left those years ago. But the barley harvest was beginning. And that's our cue that things are about to change in the story. Now, a few things up to this point. There are some lessons that I just kind of want to absorb as we kind of finish out. And the first is this. You're not going to see what you would normally typify as a miraculous work of God in the book of Ruth. You're not going to go, wow, nothing, no plagues, no parting of waters, uh, no meat or manna coming by divine providence from the skies, uh, nothing that you would normally tip, typify as a miracle, nothing jaw-dropping, nothing astounding. Um, God's just not going to work in those overt ways that we've seen Him work at other times, even in the book of Judges. And while there are extraordinary circumstances, famine and poverty and tragedy, while there are extraordinary circumstances, God doesn't act in ways we would necessarily characterize as extraordinary. But still, if you pay attention, God acts. And He is in the middle of everything that happens in this story which I will confess is a reason to love this story all the more. I mean, most of us don't get to see God do the astonishing shock and awe wonders that we read about in the Bible, New Testament, Old Testament. But if we'll pay attention, as Paul wrote, watch and pray. If we'll pay attention, we'll see God work. In our circumstances, in the mundane, in the ordinary, in the happy, in the sad, 
So Sunday mornings, what we're doing is kind of, I was just thinking about this this week. Sunday mornings, the seven signs from the book of John. God is, uh, Jesus is healing people, turning water into wine, doing these amazing things, overt displays of divine power, things that you would definitely put in that column, miracles. Let's list the miracles of the Bible. There we go. This, this, this. But I wonder if maybe we need to, at times, broaden our definition of what we might consider a miracle, what constitutes um, a wonder. This week, um, in my morning devotional time, I came across a quote from Eugene Peterson, and I thought it, I thought it fit in this tonight. Um, he wrote this. He said, Miracle through the biblical tradition is not what we don't understand, but what is done for us that we can't do ourselves. Miracle is not what we don't understand, but it is what is done for us that we can't do ourselves. He says miracle is functional. It's what God does for us or God does for us through other people that we can't do ourselves. I like that. I like that. Um, Maybe that's not the the way we would normally capture uh, that word miracle or miraculous, but it certainly captures truth about how God normally acts in the lives of regular folks. He's not normally going to stun and amaze us with unexplainable displays of might and mystery. Most often he prefers to work in the quiet ways. And often, he chooses to work through the people he puts in our lives. And while Naomi, I think it's safe to say, she has not been able to see direct answers to her prayers. Certainly, she prayed for her sick husband. Certainly, she prayed for her sick boys. Certainly, she prayed about the famine and the food situation. She hasn't seen God answer those prayers in the way she would have liked to. But Naomi has a robust faith, a faith that holds up. If you pay attention to what she does and you pay attention to what she says, publicly even, it's impressive. If you think you need to see God move in unexplainable ways, in displays of might, in order to have faith, think again. Naomi believes in God. Naomi believes in the sovereignty of God. And nothing life could throw at her could shake that trust, that faith that she had in God. She states publicly and for the record, God is in charge. There is no blessing that we enjoy that does not come from God's hand. And as she shares here, there is no struggle she has experienced that has not passed through God's hand. She knows God is in charge. Now, a weak faith, a sickly faith, turns loose of God. When the hard times come, Naomi holds the hand of the Lord even tighter when the hard times come. 
verse 21, but the Lord has brought me. I may have been through all of this. The Lord has been with me. The Lord has brought me. Six words. The Lord has brought me. She was hurting. She had experienced loss, but she continued to acknowledge the truth. My God is in control. My God is king. My God is king. A couple of weeks ago, I went back to Missouri, and uh, I've been having the staff pray this up for a long time in our Wednesday devotionals because my sister has been uh, ready to make a move. Life is kind of difficult for my sister. I won't get into it. She's never married, never will probably get married, and life's just kind of a struggle for her, and she's going to leave Springfield, Missouri, and going to make a big move for her back to Neosho, Missouri, where my parents live. I mean, she has been in Springfield, Missouri for over 30 years, and she felt like this is what she needed to do, so I drove up there a couple weeks ago and was going to help. She doesn't have a lot of stuff, so it wasn't that hard to move her, but we we got her moved and everything, and I had a simple prayer that I shared with the staff um, the day before I drove up there, and it was just, hey guys, just Let's just pray that God will give her a friend. Just her friends who she grew up with in the Osho, they're not there anymore. Everybody has moved away. The only people she knows there is my mom, it's my dad, it's their friends. It's the bridge club, okay? Just God, give her a friend. Maybe someone who lives in her new apartment building. Maybe someone she's going to meet at the YMCA or at the library. She likes to go to the library. Hey, why not six or seven friends? Hey, if you've got six or seven good friends, praise God. Embarrassment of riches. But you need one. You need one friend. Naomi had Ruth. Ruth had Naomi. And really, that was all that they needed in order to take a walk of faith back to Judea and restart their lives. Now let's be clear. Not just anyone is this kind of friend that we pray for and that we look for. Um, This was somebody Ruth could say with tears streaming down her face, with sincerity in her heart. Ruth could say, spiritually, we're connected. Your God is my God. Your people are my people. Where you go, I go. This is a special kind of friend. There was a respect between these two women. There was a trust between them. It wasn't just someone they had common interests. I mean, that's great. But it wasn't just someone they had common interests. They didn't even have the same kind of age, you know. I mean, they were at different life stages. Um, This was a faithful friend. I like that word, faithful You need a faithful friend. Someone who is full of faith. Someone who, when the barley harvest isn't coming in, they're going to stick with you. Someone who, when you bury somebody you love, they're there. You need a faithful friend. And we'll have friends and acquaintances, but we each need a faithful friend or two. Now, I know we lose those people, too. Over the past couple of months around here, 
Some of our brothers and sisters in the Preston Crest family have said goodbye to their lifelong best friends. Todd said goodbye to Suzanne. Yvette lost Herman. Anne lost Gerald. People have lost parents in the last couple of months here among us. And, and this is the thing. When someone passes on to their reward, if there is great love, there is great sense of loss. We celebrate that they're with the Lord, but we sense that void, that loss. We grieve. And while we have a hope for reunion in heaven, hard, almost unbearable, but I think this is a beautiful thing. We have a community, a God-given, Christ-ordained community. Brothers and sisters. I love that imagery in the New Testament. Brothers and sisters. Surrounding those. It's a time when there's loss to step up and be that. To be family. To surround those who grieve. To pour compassion and love day after day. And one more thing, I would say this is a biggie. If you're a believer, you have a faithful friend guaranteed in Jesus. I mean, for real. You have someone you can talk to. You have someone who listens. He loved you when you were a sinner. He sacrificed for you with, with reckless abandon. He's close at hand, always, 24-7. He's given his, his spirit to live within you. And he's a friend who walks with you, walks beside you wherever you go, day after day, until the end. Remember those words in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20. Surely I am with you always until the very end of the age. I'm with you. I got you. You're going to be okay. Let's pray, and we'll sing here in just a moment. Lord, we are thankful tonight, thankful for your presence, thankful for your, for your promise, and we know that you are a God who keeps promises. Lord Jesus, we call out to you tonight. We love you. Where you go, we will go. Where you stay, we will stay. We want to be near you. And while we look forward to a face-to-face -face reunion in heaven one day, we rejoice that your promise is that you're with us now. We're thankful, God, for the family that you've given us, a family that bears the name of Jesus, the church of Christ, the family of God. We are brothers and sisters united by this bond that we have through your spirit and through the blood of Jesus. Minister through us in the lives of each other as we pass through all the different seasons that come. Help us to know when to say an encouraging word and have the wisdom to be quiet at times and just put an arm around somebody. And God, I'm thankful that we are able to see tonight 
that you can work through ordinary people in ordinary circumstances to do truly extraordinary things. And that one day through this simple love story, there would be a child and a grandchild and a great-grandchild. And after generations, through Ruth and Boaz, Jesus would come into the world, our hope, our light, our Savior. Thank you for working in the lives of ordinary people, and we invite you to work in our lives and in our church. Our God is King. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship together. As we're standing, if you do need to take communion, it's been...